Good morning. It's good to see you all here. Last time I was in the pulpit, I mentioned that my wife and one of my daughters was hurtling westward from Indiana in our 2007 Honda Odyssey, which as of this morning, upon my arrival here at Grace, is 29 miles from clicking over to a quarter million. So I am grateful that she's here safely, and uh, I'm a far happier man and better man with her in the camp. So there she is in the back row with our good friend Stella there. And then I also want to mention that um, I appreciate your prayers. Walt, I think, two or three weeks ago mentioned that I uh, was engaged in ministry over in Scotland, and the Lord was gracious at every turn. But I have to say, upon returning, the two memories that keep uh, bumping their way back up to the forefront of my mind are two weeks ago today, when I was worshiping with some gospel-loving Anglicans at St. Helens Bishopsgate in the city of London, and then three weeks ago today, when I was with a psalm singing Presbyterians up in Edinburgh. And I just have to say that uh, blessed be the tie that binds. The gospel is, is strong. We stand in league with good people halfway around the world. And it's a great thing to know that we're not alone here in La Mirada, but there are uh, those who name the name of Jesus all around the world. So uh, thanks again for your prayers. This morning we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. So if you turn there in your copy of God's Word, and once you find it, please stand, and I'll read that passage for us. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse number 18. Hear God's Word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water." Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Thus far God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, most if not all of us have a pastime that we especially enjoy, for example, playing ball or cooking a recipe or traveling internationally. Our enjoyment of these pastimes generally overshadows the the trial or the tedium or the tension that's associated with them. So people who enjoy playing ball are willing to endure the trial of regular practices and off-season workouts and a fatigue that comes with strenuous exercise. 
I remember when I was in high school coming home one day, and I was so wiped out after football practice that I fell into bed at 6.30, and I didn't wake up until 6.30 the next morning. But it was football, uh, cooking. Um, there's tedium that's associated with cooking, you know, the detailed instructions, the standing for long hours in the kitchen, the, the waiting between the steps. My family enjoys watching Cook's Country on uh, PBS, and I, I have to remind myself as I watch that program that uh, the ease with which these dishes come together is the result of well-edited video. And not one, two, three-step recipes. I mean, that dough has to be made, it has to be kneaded, it has to be put in a bowl and covered, and then you wait for it to rise, and then you come back and you pull it out and you knead it some more, replace it in the bowl, cover it, wait for it to rise, pull it out, cut it up, put it on a tray, stick it in the room, and on and on and on it goes. Those who enjoy traveling, are willing to endure the tension that comes with jet travel, beginning at the airport when you put your bag on that uh, scale and hope that it uh, isn't over 50 pounds, lest you have to dish out a few more dollars. And then you have to battle the shoeless and the beltless masses that are being herded through the uh, x-ray machines and then jockeying for a row in the front of the jet during open, open seating. And then comes the flight. I don't know what it is about uh, uh, winging your way through space at over 500 miles an hour and at 35,000 feet above uh, the earth, but it's absolutely exhausting, even though you're sitting still. And I've been doing that for almost 40 years now. But not only do we endure these various pursuits, but we even love them. And, and we love them and their tedium and their tension and their trial because of the end game, because of where it is we're all going. So we love the sweat of athletic practice because it heightens the thrill of victory. We love the detail of, of certain recipes because it heightens the enjoyment of the dish. We love the hassle of jet... We don't... Well, you know, uh, because it heightens our appreciation of the destination. In fact, without the end game, without the hope of something more, the ongoing and unforgiving trial and tedium and tension of these pursuits would eliminate any joy that we might experience and turn them all into living nightmares. And so, as we come back, back to the book of 1 Peter this morning, it's important to remember the end game, the goal, the hope of something more. Because this letter reminds us that the trial and the tedium and the tension in some, our suffering and that for the sake of Christ, is at one level or another the experience of every Christian in this room. But as we've already seen in the section leading up to this one, a Christian suffering can reap dividends when someone by whom he or she was opposed ends up 
glorifying God because, they're go- because of their gospel-shaped behavior. And we saw that beginning in chapter 2, verse 12, and then on into chapter 3. And so in chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says, When somebody speaks evil of you, don't bully them, but instead bless them. He says in chapter 3, verse 13, In fact, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, which according to 3.17 may be God's will for your life, even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And that's a guarantee. And so, last week, Fred Sanders showed us how Peter might have responded to his own teaching in word and deed when he was called upon to suffer even unto death for the sake of righteousness. As for word, verse 17 may have very well been on his lips as he was crucified upside down for the sake of Christ. As for deed, he kept his eyes as it were on God, you can see that there, and not on Nero, by whom he was being crucified. But there's a third component that we can add to this image. If, if what Peter was saying is contained in the speech bubble and, and what he was doing is contained in that designated field of vision, then what he was thinking can be placed inside one of those little thought clouds. And here it is at the beginning of verse number 18. Christ also suffered. Now, up to this point, that had been a strength-giving thought. Christ also suffered. When Peter was being crucified upside down, he could remember and find strength in the fact that Christ also suffered. When Peter's audience was being grieved by Various and fiery trials tested for their faith, tried by the passions of the flesh, insulted for the name of Christ. They could remember and find strength in the fact that Christ also suffered. Further, when they were suffering for doing good, resisting the murderous advances of the adversary, wrestling with all kinds of anxieties, they could remember and find strength in the fact that Christ also suffered. In fact, our passage this morning is very much like the one on which Jackson preached a few weeks ago. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, Christ is, Christ is described as the one who suffered as our pattern or our example for suffering. And that's a strengthening thought. So if we suffered as Jesus suffered, which is described in detail back in chapter 2, verses 22 through 23, then we can truly be strengthened in our suffering. And if you want to hear about all the ins and outs of that, go back and listen to uh, Jackson speak on that point. You can go to gracevfree.org, go to the sermon page, find Jackson's sermon, and then just drag the cursor to the 33-minute mark, and then he'll open that up again for you. 
But here in chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, Christ is described not as our model for suffering, but as the one who suffered and thereby became our victor over sin and our conqueror over death. That's not just strength-giving, that is hope-giving as well, because it gives us a peek at the end game. So in our passage here, Peter, like a good journalist, outlines his passage. He uses all the classic points here, and and he he lays them out in this order. Uh, The when, the who, the why, and the how that Jesus became victorious over sin and thereby able to conquer death. So when you leave this morning, remember this, that it's, it's, it's not enough to know that Jesus gives his suffering people strength for the moment. He does, but that's not enough. Rather, it's also important to know that Jesus gives his suffering people hope for the future as well. Peter's clear, suffering is not all there is. Trial, tedium, tension with which God's people grapple on a daily basis is moving us toward a a, a glorious finale, a happy end, a day on which all suffering will be entirely eradicated. So we're going to see in this passage here how that is possible. And to begin, we notice when that was made possible. And it was made possible when, as you can see there in uh, verse number 18, Christ suffered once for sins. Throughout Old Testament days, as most of you well know, there were many animal sacrifices and sacrifices of other kinds as well. But on the day that Christ was crucified, the need for any more sacrifices was alleviated. Paul writes, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Romans 6.10, the author of Hebrews states, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 through 28. That's why the reformers, that's why the reformers could no longer perform the Mass. Since it was then, as it continues to be now, a supposed bloodless sacrifice in which Christ is offered again for sins. But Christ was offered once for sins. June 25th, 1995, was the day on which suddenly and without warning the floodgates of my memory uh, burst open. And every evil thing that I had thought or said or done came rushing to the forefront of my mind. And it all continued to do so for the next four years years. And it was relentless. I can remember waking up in the morning and being in mid-thought and and painfully laying my head back down on the pillow. Now, 
to be sure. There were some big ticket items swirling around in that toxic mix. But the sins that were most piercing, the sins that were most painful to me, were really the subtle ones, like laziness and deceit and callousness and thoughtlessness and and, and the calculated sins of the heart that are unique products of the fallen human condition. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, I would have paid almost any price to get those sins off the books, out of my heart, expunged from my mind. In fact, I felt back then the way some of you may even feel this morning. I felt like Lady Macbeth, you know, who holds up her hand and painfully utters, I still have the smell of blood on my hand. And all the perfumes of Arabia couldn't make my hand smell better. Oh, oh, oh. But you know what? According to our passage, the fact then and now is this. The smell was already gone. The price had already been paid. The record books had been wiped clean since 2,000 years before when Christ suffered once for all. And I was encouraged to tenaciously cling to that, which I did like a child who'd been lost in a department store and found uh, my parent. And even though the, the trauma was over, I continued to hold on. And then I began resting more and more in the reality that Christ also suffered once for all. And my guilt was assuaged, and my fears were relieved, and my grip began to loosen, and I rested in that glorious fact. Another reassuring thing that reminds us that suffering will be eradicated is seen in who suffered to end it. Again, go back to verse number 18. It was Christ who suffered, the righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, Christ did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He's righteous, we're not. That's why Paul famously wrote that God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The one who is drowning cannot throw himself a life preserver. One who's dangling from a cliff cannot throw himself a rope. Otherwise, he would. And in the same way, ones who are naturally dead set against our Creator and can't turn ourselves around, we've got to be set straight. And by someone else. And only Christ can do that. And what makes this especially beautiful is that Christ is the intersection of justice and of mercy. See, on the one hand, God requires the execution of justice for our sins. But on the other hand, he's the only one able to meet that requirement. Years ago, there was a grad student over at Biola University who only needed to find a typist to complete his thesis. Back then, all 
uh, theses were typed on a typewriter by professional typists to make sure that the student got it all right and the professor didn't have to labor through the, uh, the work. Well, as the story goes, the student couldn't find a typist. And the thesis was due the following day, and so he goes to the professor and explains the situation, and the professor, with characteristically unbending uh, uh, conviction, tells him that, uh, no, it, it has to be turned in tomorrow. And so he asked the student, do you type? To which a student replied, no, I don't type. He said, do you know anybody that types? He said, no, I don't know anybody who types. And then, uh, in a gesture that, that for this particular professor was as characteristically merciful as he was just, he said, give me the thesis. I type. It'll be turned in tomorrow. Now, there's more to that story, and you can ask me about it later. But this professor, to meet his own just requirement, was mercifully willing to do for the student what the student could not do for himself. And in the same way, Jesus, the righteous, died for us, the unrighteous, and in doing that, did for us something we could not do for ourselves. Because we know who suffered for our sins, the very Son of God himself, we can be sure that our suffering for his sake is not in vain, but it will be eradicated on the last day. But Peter also goes on to explain why Christ suffered. And again, in verse 18, it says that he did so that he might bring us to God. No one can go directly to God. One has to be brought to God, and Christ is the one who brings us to him. The same way that nobody can go directly to the president, one has to go through the proper channels and be brought to him. No one can go directly to Queen Elizabeth, one has to go through the proper channels and be brought to her. I'll always remember one January asking a friend of mine what he had done over the Christmas break, and he said while he was home, he uh, visited Billy Graham. <laughs> and I said, uh, uh, who do you have to call and ask to see Billy Graham? He said, oh no, you don't ask to see Billy Graham. Billy Graham asks to see you. And so through the proper channels, his friend was brought to visit with the well-known evangelist. In fact, not only does Christ bring us to God, but he's the one who makes God known to us in the first place. You see, unless the creator reveals himself to his creatures, there's no way for him to be known by them. Back in 1921, playwright Luigi Perandillo wrote a play called Six Actors in Search of an Author. And the plot basically goes like this. There's a, a family, a very, um, uh, what's the word? word I'm looking for here? It's escaped me. But it's, it's, it's a family, troubled family. And they wander into a play practice, and the father in this family informs the director that they're looking to meet an author. Because the one by whom 
they were created, created them in an incomplete fashion, and they were, in a sense, trying to find themselves. Well, Six Characters in Search of an Author is an absurdist play. It, it develops in an illogical order. It ends with desertion. It ends with death. And it communicates that the creator cannot be known by his creatures. Well, that was 1921. Forty years later, in 1961, C.S. Lewis wrote these words. If there is a God who created the world and created us, I could no more meet him than Hamlet could meet Shakespeare. If Hamlet wants to prove there is a Shakespeare, he's not going to be able to do it in a lab, nor is he going to be able to find Shakespeare by going up to the top of the stage. The only way he will know something about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes something about himself into the play. And in Christ, God wrote himself into the play of human history and thereby made himself and made God known. And as such, became the only one who can bring us to God. That's why the scripture says that through him we have access to the Father, Ephesians 2.18. In fact, only through him can one come to the Father, John 14.6. And that's why there's no other name given among men and women whereby you must be saved, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. So the when to Christ's suffering is once 2,000 years ago for your sin and mine. The who to Christ's suffering is the just for the unjust, God for man. And the why to Christ's suffering is so that he can bring us to God since we have no other way of getting to him. Finally, Peter explains how Christ's suffering made all of this possible. And again, we look at verse 18, but from there we uh, continue on through the rest of the passage. How does Christ's suffering make all of this possible? Well, it's possible because he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. Being put to death in the flesh, Christ was made alive in the spirit. One scholar puts it like this. Christ's death in the flesh plus being made alive in the spirit equals salvation. Two historical acts, one saving action. So the answer to the question, which one is more important, Christ's death or his resurrection, is yes. They're both important, equally as important. But what does it mean that Christ was made alive in the spirit? Now, this section here that begins with that phrase is, uh, is a challenge. Uh, the late Ed Clowney at Westminster said at the time of the original writing, uh, the meaning of this passage was eminently clear to the original audience. <laughs> but by the time of the reformers, Martin Luther found it to be almost inscrutable. That said, uh, this is the uh, way in which most Bible readers have understood this passage down through history. That Christ was made alive in the spirit means that upon his resurrection he was raised 
to the spiritual realm, which is the one through which he had been ministering uh, in Old Testament days. So in chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12, we see that this ministry occurred through the prophets. And according to our passage, even as far back as the days of Noah, when God specifically proclaimed righteousness by way of the ark builder, and we'll see that next fall when we get into 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Peter, 2 Peter 2.5, and salvation by way of the ark. And he proclaimed these things to those who are, according to verse 19, now in prison, that is spiritual prison, but in Noah's day, we're living in disobedience to God, those still with a chance to be saved. That's according to verse 20. And Peter tells us that God proclaimed this message with great patience. But neither God's preaching nor his forbearance through Noah lasted forever. And a day came on which the ancient floodwaters rightfully judge the disobedient by taking them down in death and mercifully saved the family of Noah by raising them up to life, relieving them from their suffering and rescuing them by their faith. Now notice what Peter makes of this ancient story. He rescues this thing from our 20th, 21st century uh, uh, grasp, whereby we have taken it and, and given it to the children's department. No, no, no. The story of Noah is for now, and we see this here, and as I mentioned, we'll see it again uh, wonderfully in Second Peter. Notice what Peter makes of this ancient story, especially in the light of uh, our upcoming baptism service here in a few weeks. Beginning in verse 21. Baptism which corresponds to this, that is the story of Noah, the salvation of God's people by water, which otherwise would have killed them. Baptism now saves you, not, not as a removal of dirt from the body, in other words, not as a religious act, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through, through what? Through, through what you have done? No. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has, and I'm going to add parenthetically here, conquered the wages of sin and the ultimate effects of suffering and gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This is the thing that gives us not only strength, but hope. Christ also suffered. But his suffering and his death led to his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification, thereby making a way for us to follow him through the floodwaters of this life, and on into the next. And the beautiful thing is, by his word, he shows us the way. And by his spirit, he encourages us along the way. One summer, uh, Paul Gussif, my dad, and I went backpacking. Uh, we did that for a number of summers. And on this particular summer, we began at a place called Mineral King. That's where the trailhead was located. And we began ascending the side of a mountain to a place called Monarch Lake. 
And uh, it was a pretty easy pitch out of uh, Mineral King. It was a lovely day. The weather was beautiful. But by the afternoon, the trail on which we were traveling had narrowed to the point where Paul and I could neither find the trail nor my dad. And I can remember uh, after lunch, we were beat. Uh, The altitude was taking its toll. The way forward was now being realized by skipping from one boulder to another. The, The happy conversation that we had been enjoying in the morning had been reduced to silence. That was punctuated by periodic complaints. It was miserable. And then, without any fanfare, and seemingly out of nowhere, there's my dad. (laughs) And uh, through these heaving gasps, you know, Paul and I blurred out, where have you been? Where did the trail go? We have no idea where we are. And my dad, how well I remember, he said, boys, I've already been there. I've been to Monarch Lake, and I've come back to get you. Follow me. And friends, i got to tell you, that changed everything. Gusseff and I swelled with hope, even though fatigued. We were hopeful. Everywhere my dad put his foot, we put our foot. Every turn he made, we followed him in that too. And he didn't take us the easy way. He didn't put us on his back. We weren't boys. We were like almost 30, you know. So, I mean, this this is what (laughs) heightens the, I was going to say the sadness of the story. It's the, uh, the sickness of the story. Didn't take us the easy way. He didn't carry us. We suffered along in the very same steps that he himself had suffered, but with hope, because he'd made it. And with his guidance and encouragement, we knew that we could make it too. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son who knew the way of suffering, is with us this morning to help us in that same way. May we find strength in his example and hope in knowing that he's already reached a safe end, the very end toward which he is leading and encouraging us. May we find joy in that, for Christ's sake and for his glory. Amen.